Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. Okay, we're going to get started. Grab a beer, a water, some pizza, have a seat. Have a couple of announcements before we get started. So this, I'm Ryan Frederick. This is Startup Grind. We get together once a month and have a conversation with someone important to the start. Go over here. Kitty's telling me to go over here. Okay, do I have to stand here? I, I feel more comfortable walking around. Walk in this general area. Okay. Have a conversation with someone important to the startup ecosystem, entrepreneur, investor, uh, ecosystem catalyst. Uh, so we certainly have that with uh, Cheryl tonight. Uh, need to thank sponsors, Rev1, for letting us come here and do this. Our firm, AWH, uh, which uh, springs for the beer and the pizza. We help companies build digital products. Um, Dickinson Wright, Alex Brown is in the back, um, waving. So if you need legal assistance, talk to Alex Brown from Dickinson Wright. Um, Daryl is in the back there. He's waving now from King Memory, longtime supporter and sponsor, and GBQ for accounting, tax, and fraud, and Heartland Bank. If you need some banking services, talk to uh, Mike from Heartland Bank. I think that uh, covers the sponsors. If you are not familiar and have not yet heard, Rise of the Rest is coming. Uh, the deadline for pitching, if you want to pitch for $100,000 in front of Steve Case, is tomorrow. So um, fill out that form and that submission. I also want to talk about one other thing that's not is a happy topic and a sad topic um, all in one. So if everybody ha has not heard, um, Zach Lawrence, um, who was as par a part of Ohio Tech Angel Fund and um, just doing some startup consulting too, was in a terrible car accident in Georgia, the, the country Georgia, and it's near and dear to my heart and our heart as the Startup Grind family because actually over there doing a startup grind um, with the folks in Georgia uh, as part of that chapter. Um, he's, he's back in the States, he's doing better. As you can see, the community has rallied. Uh, two, over 200,000 has been raised through um, the site to help with his care of medical expenses. Uh, he's now transitioned from one long-term care facility to another. And so you can read the story. Um, I'm not asking you to donate. If you want to donate, that would be awesome to help him out. If you just want to keep them in your thoughts, that's cool. Um, if prayer is your thing and you want to say a prayer, that's cool too. They posted an update. If I could figure out how to use the mouse, that would be good. Last update was on, on the 14th um, today where his sister and um, brother-in-law were in and, and he was responding to them. So he's getting better. It's going to be a long road. So um, in any way that you can, please support Zach. So I'm now going to um, stop talking about that. If you have questions about it afterwards, I'm happy to answer any questions that you've got. 
Please help me welcome Cheryl Turnbull from Ohio State, the Ohio State University. Thank you. You're welcome. So, sure, I, I teased Cheryl that I was going to share something that we hadn't yet talked about. Um, we met last week to sort of prep, and she, the, the, our, our server was so, someone that, that knew your son, yeah. one of your sons, and um, gave Cheryl one of the best compliments that you can give a person. He said that basically she looked the same as like 12 or 15 years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, that he did. And, and I could tell... It, he was buttering me up big time. Right, he was. <laughs> he texted my son and said, I hope your mom's a big tipper. <laughs> <laughs> so he's probably hoping that you're now going to hire him and give him a job or something right, it, right. at TCO or one of the companies. Um, so that was a fun moment. So thank you for coming and doing this. Um, appreciate it. So you... you How'd you get into this racket of doing venture and startups and commercialization? Give us a little bit of the backstory of how you've ended up where you have doing it with the TCO. Well, I started at the top and then just worked my way down. <laughs> so I was in, um, I actually started off in New York in private equity and we were working with like, I think my first fund was um, 800 million. And so, um, Worked in private equity, did New York for a while, got tired of the New York scene, moved to Columbus, worked with Bank One Capital, worked with the Mezzanine Group there, um, then worked for Talisman Capital. And as we're moving through this pipeline, I'm getting to smaller and smaller and smaller companies till finally here I'm at Ohio State. And it's not even a company, it's an idea. It's a technology, it's a discovery. And actually, that's one of the more fun things because when I was working with LargeCo, it was, you know, a lot of, we did a lot of acquisitions and private equity was all about um, making your returns off of applying leverage and debt and paying that down and structuring the deal correctly. And this is really about making an impact on the world because the things that we are investing in, the things that we're bringing out as a startup company, it's technology that is very disruptive. It has a big impact on people's lives. So I have to say it's gotten more and more exciting as it's gone along. So, so now there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere exactly. to go down from here. Exactly. How do you, how do you get pre technology validation. <laughs> that's where we are, actually. That's a lot of what we do is um, do this. That's what we're doing is validating technologies. So we're taking these incredible ideas. Basically, they run out of research dollars because if you're, I guess I could go back up and work for the NIH and, or NSF and give grant dollars, but that wouldn't be as much fun because really what we're doing is once they've come up with this incredible discovery, we say, how does this apply to people? How does this apply to the world? How can it make a difference? And that is where I, I, I get a lot of reward out of it. So th this is um, a, a difficult subject to talk about, but... You're, He's kind of scary, isn't well, he? <laughs> maybe not difficult for you. Awkward for a guy okay. to be broaching this subject. You're a woman in, in, in venture, startups, technology, very accomplished, worked at some big firms, right? Part of technology commercialization now. What's your experience been as a woman in a male-dominated field across all of those sort of fields that make up commercialization? 
I'd say that um, it was easier when I had the money because people were really nice to me when I had the money. So that, that worked out really well. I have to say on the private equity and VC side of the equation, it was a little harder to break into and there weren't a lot of guys in the room when I was, um, you know, in, in my classes at school or even in some of our meetings when we started, um, you know, when I started in New York. But uh, I would say there it was much more an environment that was measured on the basis of production and how much dollars that I was earning on behalf of myself and the partners. So that was a very sort of objective measurement. Um, it was very much of a uh, you are responsible for finding and doing your own deals. And so that was much more of an independent exercise. So I'd say once I got into it, it was easier. Um, I'd say now that I'm on kind of the other side of the equation where we're doing a lot of, it's a lot of relationship building. I joke that um, my role right now is an awful lot of e-harmony and that I'm connecting entrepreneurs with super cool technologies, with sources of capital. And so it's a lot of relationship building and I work a lot more closely with um, the team at TCO. So we work with our licensing managers there who are responsible for protecting the intellectual property. They understand the technology development much better than I do. I work kind of more on the business side. So we all kind of have to work more hand in hand. And I'd say um, that some of the crustier, older inventors tend to be maybe a little less um, accustomed to having um, a woman in the room who doesn't get them coffee, but um, you know that's something that I think is um, you know something I can manage. So, what what advice would you give to especially a, a female founder who's probably still in this day and age going to be either seeking advice or money from a a man? Yeah. Right. What advice would you give a female founder to navigate those those waters? I think female founders are in a very difficult position, to be perfectly honest. And I would say that one of the best things the female founder can do is to get a mentor, somebody who knows knows the ropes and can help them navigate the whole process. I think that women, as as women, we are constantly sort of looking and saying, how can I do things better? And there's probably more self-doubt if we haven't done it before. Where I mean, I've seen this lots of times where a, a, a guy and a woman with the exact same experience, you'll ask them if they, if they can do something. And the guy will jump in and say yes. And the woman will sit there and go, well, I haven't done it before, but... And then go through that rationalization well, of the skill process. Well, that's also because men are mostly dopes, but, you know. <laughs> no. I think it's a, um, it's a process of social affirmation. So, a lot, you know, uh, women um, need to be able to tell themselves and need to be able to, uh, you know, work with others to, you know, inspire that confidence to say, yes, I do have the skill set to do this. I may not have done exactly this before, but I know how to get it done. I'm no less capable. But I think having a mentor to kind of help you understand what the next step in the process is and how to get prepared so that you do walk into that meeting and go, yes, I can do that. I think that would be what I would look for the most if I were a female founder today. How do we improve the ecosystem faster so that a, a, a female founder doesn't have to be 10x better than a male founder? Um, it, are, is there anything that we can do sort of ecosystem-wide 
or, or is the best thing that we can do now just talking about it and making sure that, that whatever biases are there begin to get sort of chipped away at? I guess I don't think that women have to be 10x better than the men to be successful. I think that that is sort of the perception and it's what a lot of what we tell ourselves. But truly, I think that um, where the men do well is on the networking side of the equation. So you tend to fund people, hire people, uh, work with people that you already know because you've worked with them, you know that they're competent. It's not meant to be exclusionary. It's simply that if I know that I need a marketing guru and I know Melissa, I'm going to hire her. She's going to be my marketing strategy person. But, you know, it's just because I know Melissa and I don't know Neil. But if, um, if you can get out there, if you let people know, you do that networking, and maybe you're not playing golf with them, but if you are in the events, you're having net, uh, mentors, and you, um, and you make yourself, you kind of continually put yourself out there, I think that women have every chance that men do to be part of it. You just need to make yourself um, known on that basis. It's, it's relationships, truly. Well, this could be fun. Why don't we continue the the path of pitting the the marketing gurus against each other, and we'll have <laughs> Melissa and Neil come up here and take these two chairs. We'll just pepper them with mar marketing go. guru yeah, questions, we could do that. and we'll see who survives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's make this a, a contest of of intellectual prowess, not physical prowess. <laughs> okay, you're you're tapping out already. Okay. So the, the, the process of, so there's a lot going on over at TCO. Lots right? going on, there, yes. There's, so there's the whole technical commercialization piece, and then there's the funding piece, and there's lots of gooey parts in, in the middle that make all of mm -hmm. it happen and connect everything together. What, how do you keep it all straight, and, and how do you sort of figure out what the priority is and, and keep everything flowing as well as it can flow through that entire process? Well, I'd say it's sort of like life. Um, you've, everybody talks about leading a balanced life, but it's never balanced on that day. <laughs> Every day seems to be con completely consumed with whatever it is. You have to just look that over the course of the week or the month, you've balanced out your priorities so that the important things are getting accomplished. So we really focus on three different things. Um, one is capital. So our board of trustees was just prescient enough to have set aside in 2012 $100 million of funding that would be available um, outside of the chief investment officer's domain for um, economic development. So we call it our economic development pool. And it's available. We definitely want to earn a return off of it. This isn't like a, this isn't a charity fund, but we don't have to be in the top decile of performance. So they gave it to me. <laughs> the chief investment officer said, "Okay, we don't that that wasn't how he wanted to be evaluated." But the um, this this pool of funds that have now we've invested in eight different ventures. We have eight different funding mechanisms out there, and they have a, it definitely. We want to have an IRR associated, positive IRR associated with them, but we also want to contribute to the entrepreneurial startup ecosystem in Central Ohio. So obviously, um, you know, big big splash was made with our first one, which was Drive Capital, but we sort of started at the end. 
of the pipeline. And what we have done since then is backed up and started at the beginning. So we have all these funds that kind of get you to the point of where you're a Series A. So that's one piece of the equation. Um, another piece of the equation is our just incredible technology. So we have, we've used, again, we've used our accelerator award, uh, which is the, one of the funds, to kind of entice some of our inventors to disclose some really exciting technology. So we offer up to 100,000 in a contest, basically, that uh, to take technologies from kind of the bench stage to um, more of an application sort of stage, like build a prototype, run a trial, that sort of thing. And we have found that offering that prize has uh, pulled a number of really exciting invention disclosures out from uh, inventors that might not normally have done that. So technology, really big part of the equation. Shocking that offering people money changes the equation. Yeah, it, it was one of my more brilliant ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the third piece of the equation is um, talent. I, we are always, always looking for talent. So uh, we are constantly seeking business leaders, entrepreneurs, consultants, advisors, board members who will help work with these technologies and, and fledgling companies to make them very successful. So those are the three things that pretty much that we have to balance in the new ventures group. And is the, is the people piece the hardest piece? Because I mean, today, because you, you have you have money that you can invest in companies, and when we run out, that'll be my hardest piece. It, right. So you know, today the people piece is the hardest because you also have right. lots of of technologies and new ideas. We had sort over four hundred, I think, over four hundred invention disclosures last year from our faculty. So that was just in one year the number of new ideas that came through our office, and we were still working on the thousands from the old ones so right it's not like there's a cutoff where you stop right. working on the other ones right right so we will never run short of the ideas so i would encourage anybody who wants to run a startup company who's just sitting there going if i do this if only i could think of what to do come to ohio state we have lots of ideas and what is that process like for someone to apply and to express interest and in potentially being considered as a, a company builder, for lack of a better term. Company, and what's it look like for, for you guys? Company a great term. So um, contact somebody at the, in the technology commercialization office and say that you're interested in looking at some of our technologies. So it, it, we can start off as easily as we have a little catalog with some non-confidential summary information on technologies that we've screened out that we think are potential platform uh, technologies for a startup company. But you could also, after looking through that, say, hey, I really like this one area, but I don't see anything quite exactly that fits. In which case, if we know what area you're interested in, we can also introduce you to the inventor. Because the inventor usually has five or six extra things in his or her lab that haven't been disclosed, that are currently in some state of development, and only need a little bit more encouragement, push, say, hey, I really think we could find a customer for this. I think this has commercial application to get the inventor excited. So if that's the case, we then have the uh, potential business leader sign a confidentiality agreement so we can have more in-depth conversations. And it can be with one technology, it can be with one inventor, or it can be with you know a five or six so that you can screen through various ones and choose. 
Uh, we've had people take two technologies and put them together because they made a stronger business model together than each one did separately. So uh, once that part's done, if the, if the potential business leader's interested in continuing, we, have, we put them through a background check and then we move toward, if everything's clear and we want to move forward, we move toward the process of either optioning or licensing the technology. And, and everything's clear is like a big long due diligence process of vetting and that kind of stuff. But yeah. I'm trying to shorten the story. Yeah, no, I got it. <laughs> and um, you, you look for industry sort of alignment, right? That's a big piece of that matchmaking process between a technology and a company builder. Someone that knows the ropes of, of a particular industry and segment. Yeah, I think we're a little different than the folks on the coast who are taking, and as it works for faculty there and it works for you know students there, is that they have such access to VC that they don't work with their technology commercialization office the same way that folks in the Midwest do. So what you'll see there is a student will come up with an idea, so you have lots of like 19-year-old founders. Um, who go to the, visa, the to the venture capital group, and the venture capital group is the one who helps put together the business leader and the money and the backing, um, and they provide the channel expertise. The venture capital firm does. We don't have channel expertise, but we can provide. But basically, our role has been to help provide the capital because there's not lots of VC in this area. We have wonderful partners with Rev1. I mean, they have, and the state of Ohio has been terrific in terms of helping us create a number of funding mechanisms in our community that are different from what you see on the coasts. And, um, you know, our good angel groups and such like that, they're the people that we look to to kind of say, you know, can you help us with this channel validation? So we recruit the business leader. We want the business leader to have not just the idea, and in fact, they don't have to have the idea. We want them to have the channel expertise of how do you take this technology to market? What is the minimum viable requirement for the product that I need to get out there to validate this? What do customers think of this? Who, sometimes my customer and my buyer are completely different people. How do I know how to get this to market? Where are the leverage points? And how can um, that business leader add value to the technology? Because we got the technician. We got the person who knows how to make this thing work. And we have capital. Um, what we really need is the person who has the market understanding and can actually take it to a customer. And, and based upon our, our previous conversations, you mostly are getting it right when you pair a company builder with a technology. Um, it, and not that the company ultimately is wildly successful, but you're at least putting the pieces of the puzzle together well enough to give it a shot and an opportunity to be successful and to work. I would say we're getting better as our network is growing. And I have to thank so many of the people who are currently in this room in terms of helping all of that happen. Because I would say that, so in, I started with the Technology Commercialization Office in January of 2013, and we had 12 portfolio companies. And I promise you, if you had walked in at, in January of 2013, and you said you were interested in a technology and you could sign your name, we pretty much signed you up. I mean, it wasn't maybe quite that bad, but our pool was like really, really small. I should have signed up then. I know. <laughs> Today, I have to say that we had like this fabulous, we had a startup snapshot here uh, in the, uh, 
a little while ago, and we featured a technology that was a new type of contact lens. And we got two people super excited about that. Um, one who, what, uh, of, of many, but the, the two that were, um, ended up competing for this, one had a background with, uh, uh, with Bausch and Loam and um, uh, lens crafters, and the other had, uh, had experience with Allergan. I'm like, wow, you know, that wasn't happening before. We are able to be pretty selective now in terms of being able to choose our business leaders based upon their degree of expertise in a given area. And truly, it's only because our network's gotten so big. And, you know, it's so nice that people, like, refer people to us to say, hey, I think, you know, if you're interested in running a startup, talk to Ohio State. They have a bunch of great technologies. Um, you know, the Rev1 folks have an entire talent database that that they pull from in terms of helping us find potential business leaders. Uh, so, I mean, it really is, it's a, it's a whole big community effort and I want to say that the startup ecosystem in Columbus is remarkably different today than it was five years ago and it's really helping us with that talent matching piece. So how does your relationship with Rev1 work around the fund um, do, just I'll leave it, at, uh, I'll leave it at, at that as the question. So um, we are so lucky here in Ohio because um, the Third Frontier put up a, uh, has created these ESPs. So um, it stands for Entrepreneurial Signature Program and Rev1 is the ESP or the Accelerator Incubator for the Central Ohio area. And the state gave everybody a lot of freedom to kind of develop what resources and uh, capabilities each ESP would offer. And we were lucky enough to partner with Rev1 in that, and the state offered a number of different programs. So we've put up money, the state matched that money, and then Rev1 manages that money because Ohio State picking its own technologies might, um, you know, that's not really an independent vetting mechanism. So having Rev1 and having their professional investment expertise. So across the board, we've invested in, um, at least in the last four or five years, the Concept Fund, the Catalyst Fund, the Rev1 Fund. So all of those support the startup ecosystem in Ohio. They support the university technologies. They manage all those funds, and um, you know we're just lucky to, to be able to partner with them. They provide a lot of services for our portfolio companies. So there's um, a number of, you know, some of these great partners here that you mentioned to our sponsoring um, Startup Grind also provide certain, a certain number of hours of pro bono services for our startup companies, which is really, really helpful. Uh, they have a great, um, they, they connect to uh, some first customers. So we, we partner really, really well with them. How closely do you stay engaged with a company once it's in that company building phase? Um, do you stay closely engaged, loosely engaged? Is it, is it up to the company? How, how does the sort of future look once you've put that company builder in place with the technology and now they're trying to actually build a company around it? It's more a function of the company and what the company wants to accomplish. So generally, the we take uh, the, our Ohio State takes an observation right on the board of directors, and there are some companies who meet monthly. There are some companies who meet annually. There are some companies who are very very active and they're raising a lot of capital, and there's others. Particularly, we have some smaller ones that are run by a faculty who. Um, 
aren't interested in, it, we call it more of a lifestyle business because they aren't look, looking to raise external capital and they really don't need our help. But if they're companies that are continuing to, continuing to raise capital or want introductions to customers, we tend to work more closely with them. And is there any requirement that the company stays in Ohio or they, they do business in Ohio? Is there, what, what limitations or requirements do you put on the company to get funding and or from an operational perspective, if any? So it is up to the company as to where they want to locate and where they want to incorporate. But in order to receive the funds that the state, so all these funds that I talked about, the Concept Fund, the Catalyst Fund, the Rev One Fund, those all have state dollars as part of them. So if you want to receive those, you're required to stay in the state. They want to see you um, have a majority of your operations in the state. They, I mean, the whole point of them putting these dollars forward is that they want to create jobs in Ohio. And I think that you can see over the past five years just the tremendous change in our ecosystem and smart cities and all the things. I think our community leaders are doing a fabulous job of really invigorating Columbus and the state in terms of really create, ma making a very dynamic economic environment. So how do you decide what technologies you're actually going to support and get behind? If, because you, the, the, you're, you're being presented with too many, ultimately, right, to, to sort of back and, and put the full force of TCO behind them. How do you decide which ones you will support and the ones that you won't? So there is a triage process. Our licensing managers will go through. We, they submit every, all the inventions come through. Our Innovate database, which we just spun out into a startup company all by itself right there. And, um, and they, they pitched at Wake Up Startup on Friday morning. Yes, they did. They did. Right, right after the doggy treats, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so everything comes in online through a venture disclosure process. We are, our licensing managers take a look at it, kind of, uh, they take a look to make sure that, you know, they call it the prior art search, meaning has anyone invented this before? So that um, we make sure that we can exercise our intellectual property rights with it. We then look to see the stage of development. So if it is something that's done and an existing company wants to license, we will go, th that'll be the route we'll take first time all the time because that's the fastest path to market. Uh, that's the way we can get that technology out as quickly as possible. Um, Sometimes it's so, 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 so early, we kind of say, look, there might be some research dollars still available to you, kind of go back to the lab. But if it's in that interim space where it really takes the private application of capital in order to make it successful, then we take, we, that's where we start from the startup side of the equation to dig a little bit deeper. So when we take a look, we then see, um, you know, what is the market potential for this? So we have some really, so we have a really cool technology that will make a blood red parrotfish, which is pretty cool, but not like the largest market that we could probably attack. What did, what did you just say? It's a blood red parrotfish. I, I, don't, even, I, don't, I don't even know what that is. So, so it's very cool. I don't know if that's an evidence of lack of market, but because um, I'm go. only one person, <laughs> uh, but. So um, I mean, it's a, it's a Really great technology, but probably not a startup company. On the other hand, we have um, another technology that. So what? Do, so what does the inventor of that then do? Are are they 
are they free to then, if, if you turn down pursuing a technology, are they then free to pursue it in other ways if they want to? Sort of talk about the outcomes if you don't think there's a market for it, but the inventor still is like wowed by it. We, um, we, well, we can help find a corporate partner potentially. That would be one way. Maybe it's not a startup company, but if we can find a corporate partner, we can do that. We can assign the technology back to the inventor if there's something that they want to do with it. If, um, but most of the cases, they go back and are looking at further research dollars. Okay. Yeah, that tends to be because we're that or there's you know grant dollar SBIR STTR money so we help them find alternative sources if it's not the basis for a startup company. So it's it's kind of a redirection point for them. Yeah. To say okay. The, the pivot. Right. I was I was gonna I was gonna try to avoid saying <laughs> right, that. Right. Right. Uh, as we've already said ecosystem, like although you pronounce it ecosystem, okay. so now I'm going to have to afterwards look it up and see, you know, whether ecosystem is the correct pronunciation or ecosystem. Do you, do you say economics or economics? Economics. So see, yeah. And is economics wrong? I don't know. I think they're both right. And you say economics? Potato, potato. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just want to be right on something, especially <laughs> as, as smart as you are compared to me. I want to be right about this. Um, you, you can show me up. It's all good. Okay. No, well you've, no, you're probably right, so I probably should stop talking about it. Um, so, okay, you were talking about... Parrotfish, I think. Parrotfish, right, <laughs> as something that didn't have a big marketing and you weren't going to pursue in comparison to something that does have a big market and helping to sort of then validate whether... What is the opportunity and does it make sense to begin you know, taking it through the commercialization process? And I just I want to brag a little bit about our super smart um, inventors of our, in our faculty. So uh, malaria, we have a malaria detector and currently uh, malaria is detected by doing a blood draw. And it's kind of like malaria is a parasite. So think of like a, since we're doing fish, um, an entire fish tank. And if you have malaria, you might have a really big fish tank and you only have like a couple of fish floating around in your bloodstream. And if you go ahead and dip a cup of water, you may or may not pull out a fish with that. But if you have, you know, if it's quite progressed and now the tank is full of goldfish when you, or, or parrotfish, when you dip your cup in, you're likely to pull one out. But nobody wants to wait till they're in the very, very horrible stages of malaria, by then you're probably symptomatic, and although you don't have to be, but um, you don't want to wait till you have that much of the parasite in your system in order to detect it. Well, they found that something that the parasite does turns like the hemoglobin in your blood to iron or something, but you can detect it with a magnet then. It, cre it creates this iron crystal out of your blood that can be detected with a magnet. Like, this is so elegant. Aren't they so smart? I'm like, that's just amazing. And there's all these, you know, you think of the impact that you can make in terms of giving people uh, if, that, a, uh, that they can know whether or not they have malaria at the point of care instead of, I mean, these people can walk a week to come get tested. They go home. A month later, they're back at the clinic, and now you tell them they have malaria. Well, if you were able to do that in 15 minutes before they left the clinic, you could start treatment so much earlier. And you think of, um, you know, the whole, the, uh, you know, all the pipeline workers. I mean, Exxon and those folks have a really big need for this. So you look at impact, you look at what it can do, um, and you look at how much it's going to cost to get there. But we have all these brilliant cancer inventors, and 
you have to look and say, okay, are we going to be able to invest or find the you know tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to get this to market? So you kind of look for that optimal point of kind of where your entry, you know, the size of the market, how much it costs to get into the market, what your optimal entry point is, and kind of work your way through that, and then finding the talent. And how much sort of pre-finding this company builder are you getting into what the potential business model for the company could be? Are you Is that part of that due diligence around commercialization? Or do you wait until you have the company builder matched to that technology and then the company builder does much of that? Now we're going to figure out how we're actually going to take this to market and what our pricing is going to be and what our messaging is going to be and what our distribution is going to be. How much of that do you do before the company builder's in place, and how much of it do you wait for the company builder, or does it depend on company and technology? It probably depends, because some are much more obvious than others on how you're going to get them to market, and actually the use of the technology. So we find that our inventors oftentimes come up with solutions, and then we go around and try to find the problem that it solves. So there's if you have a clinician a clinician is solving say that again because i think for fairly new entrepreneurs in the room that's an incredibly important statement because i think by and large that's how many of us start on our, our entrepreneurial <laughs> journey right yes is a solution searching for a problem exactly and obviously it's much easier if you um, have identified what the problem is, what the value proposition is, what does this solve, what pain point does it relieve. You know, that's what that whole kind of customer validation piece of the equation goes for. So um, we had a great technology that um, was originally invented for um, analyzing the health of organs for organ transplants. It was a uh, protein sensor, handheld, could detect the uh, could detect the presence of like E. coli in you know, a relatively short period of time. And when we looked at this, this wasn't a super huge market for transplant organs, but it's a really big problem in the food produce industry. And I'll think of all of like the leafy green vegetable recalls. And so, uh, uh, you know, we found it, we had a business leader who was out trolling for technologies, found this one and goes, I know where I'm going to use this. So we count on our super smart uh, business leaders to come up with this kind of stuff. Now there's others that's much more obvious. And sometimes, you know, we get lucky and we figure it out before we find the business leader. But I would say that um, we, it, it's a team effort. We all have to work together. It's the inventor, it's the business leader, it's the licensing manager, it's the new ventures team member, it, it, it's everybody. So now we're, we're protecting people f from um, themselves be so they don't eat bad lettuce or spinach. Um, but are we still also applying that to use it for transplant organs? Maybe just at Ohio State. Okay. Because um, one seems way more impactful than the other one. But I get the whole commercialization part of it, too. I mean, if, if, if it's going to be for 200 procedures versus 200 million, um, there's a different business case to be, to be made there. Um, so what do you enjoy the most about it? I would say the really smart people I get to work with. I mean, the, it's everyone's, you know, everyone is brilliant in their own way and just... Uh, Doesn't it, that suck on some days, being around all those really smart people? You know, I don't know. But I, you're, I, I, mean, I would be so bored if I wasn't. I think it's so cool to talk with these inventors and they, like, uh, clearly they've studied for decades on this stuff and they come up and they explain it and it's so simple and so elegant and you go, that's just a beautiful thing. Um, 
And to have them be able to share that with me is fabulous because I don't have a technical background. I'm a, I'm a finance background. I can structure deals and that sort of thing. But to be able to hear their inventions and how they come up and the impact it's going to have on the world, I say that part's really fun and it is more rewarding feeling that I'm bringing, helping bring something of value to the world forward than I think I felt when I was in the private equity world and we were just making lots of money. It didn't suck, but... <laughs> <laughs> making lots of money? I don't think anybody who's ever made lots of money has said that it sucked. Yeah. Um, so what do you like least about the current gig? What do you like least about trying to commercialize university technology? Or could you live without? I don't know. It's just, it's um, every now and then it would be nice just to kind of um, have a day off maybe to breathe, but um, we've just been so busy. Um, I love every piece of it. There really isn't a bad part to this. Um, I feel, you know, you live with your portfolio companies and, you know, their success, you know, I own, their failures I own. and. You know, but that's all part of the journey. I wouldn't get rid of it. Um, I wouldn't want to deal, you know, if, if, it would be weird to only deal with success all the time, but everyone goes through that up and down. And you can see that working with 64 portfolio companies, I can maybe add, provide a little perspective to the entrepreneur who's going through it once and say, yes, you'll live through this. This is part of it. You're not, you're not missing out. Have confidence. Stay the course. And um, truly, we're have put enough funds in place that we're gonna not let our startup companies die for lack of capital. Our startup companies will die because the technology didn't work and generally we have you know entrepreneurs who pivot. Um, our technology might work because we didn't build a good enough team but um, with all the right resources but you have lots of people here who are going to be advising you. This is what you need. That's what you need. I can introduce you to the right person. So that it just really tends to be that, hey, the technology didn't work. We have plenty of people here who aren't going to let you build it until you know a customer wants it which tends to be a, you know, that kind of big mistake that entrepreneurs make is they build it and then they go around and they to ask a customer, do you like it? Whereas, you know, I think we have the model right here. We go out, we check stuff with customers and then we refine and build that MVP, so. Do you wanna do more? And if so, how do you scale a technology commercialization operation? I think that's probably one of the one of the easiest. Yes, I think we definitely want to do more, and um, we have just added a couple of people to the new ventures team, which I'm super excited about. Uh, we have added a new director of new ventures, Zach Ellis. He's absolutely terrific. Catherine Schulhouse is coming on board as our new ventures analyst. I'm super excited to get her on board. Um, and you know, the whole Rev One team they help us expand our capabilities an awful lot. So. Really, it's just continuing to build out that network where we find the talent. That, that's the key piece of the equation to being able to scale. And I think success breeds success. So as we have successful portfolio companies, as people see the resources that are provided and the amount of um, awards we win, like 3BAR, and the amount of, um, of capital that's raised and the jobs that are created, uh, you know, I think all of that really starts to, people say, I want to be part of that. I see that you support this. Um, I, I, I can take that risk. 
So I've got one more. It's not really a question. It's, I guess, more of um, you, you've won something. So I'm going to make this statement, and then I'll throw it up for questions. So John, where's John? John's back there at the Genius Bar. So John told me that you, you were his, you are his thousandth connection, and that's not easy for me to say, one thousandth connection on LinkedIn. Hi, John. <laughs> and, he, and he made a, no one, and who was, the person who was going to be his thousandth connection had no idea that this was the case, no. but he said to himself that whoever that is, that he was going to take out to lunch. So he would, heard that. So he's thankful that it wasn't someone in like the Ukraine or Thailand, <laughs> right? Hadn't thought about that, right? So he's appreciative of the fact that it was you. It was a Columbus person, right. see our ecosystem, our ecosystem rocks. Right. So n- now I don't want to make it awkward, but now you have a lunch invitation from John. There you go. Thank you, John. If if you if you would like to take him up on it, uh, obviously I'll choose somewhere very expensive. Okay. Uh, okay, questions for Cheryl. Is there an interplay between the inventor, the technologists, and when that gets handed over to the company builder and managing those dynamics? Is there ever tension, difficulty, and how is that managed? Never. Not with the people. No, they're all lovely. <laughs> um, that is, it's a big part of the dating game is that there really has to be a nice match between the potential business leader and the inventor. And be, unless the technology's done and baked, and you don't need to know how the tech, you don't have to refine the technology at all, um, that's gonna be an important relationship that you have. Um, sometimes it's not the inventor um, themselves, it's their postdoc. Uh, but you generally need a technology bridge to make this work. And that relationship is very important. We incentivize the uh, inventors by when we negotiate a license agreement for the startup company between the company and the university, we take an equity percentage. That's basically one of the ways we define a startup company is in that we take an equity stake in that company. And then we distribute that equity stake back to the inventor and the college and department that supported the inventor. Um, but if you want the inventor to work with you after the deal is signed, then you sign it. Then you start to work with that inventor or the postdoc or whomever your technical lead is going to be, to um, work with them afterward. And the amount of equity that you give them for that is really a function of the amount of time and effort milestones that they put in after the technology is licensed. So they kind of get two dips in that they get the pre you know, the, the po- up to the point of the license, and then they get the point afterward. I have two questions, and I think you, you almost answered the first one. So several years ago, we talked, and five years ago, um, the expectations... Do I look the same? Yeah, you look, <laughs> you look better, honey. Um, the expectations on the part of the university were, at that time, somewhat unrealistic. They wanted to be paid up front, and if it didn't work, they still wanted to be paid. But if it did work, they wanted to licensing fees and all that. And so it was sort of like, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. How much has that changed? And it sounds like it has. And then my second question is, what's for, for one or two of your companies that are farthest along, are they profitable? What, what's a success story? Okay. So how it works from a what does a typical license to a startup company look like? Um, 
a license agreement has a number of different points of where you get where the university gets an economic return. So the first one is called an upfront fee. And an upfront fee was very, very common when um, universities license things to large companies. If you want to use it, pay me for it, and you'll get it. Um, that doesn't work with a startup company because if the startup has money, we don't want that money coming back to the university right away. We want that money going to develop the technology into a product, into a service, into something that it can make it to the market. So we don't charge a cash upfront fee for a startup company. Instead, we take equity. So we're, and the other big term of, is a royalty. So royalties kick in when the company starts to make sales. So between those two things, what we're recognizing for a startup company is that we're taking the risk alongside the company. If the company does well, the equity's worth something. If the company doesn't work, work it, you know, it, no one lost. Um, on the royalty side, unless you're making sales, we're not making royalties. So those are the two big economic terms that are with a startup company. Um, the other one that probably makes a difference for um, those that have strong intellectual property positions and, um, is that we have startup companies pay for patent expenses. So what we do is we look at the patent expenses that have been accrued to the time of the license and we will defer those, schedule those out in some way that the startup company can actually pay. But then the patent expenses that are going on from the time of the license agreement forward, we do ask the, the startup company to pay for those. And that's primarily because if we were footing the bill and we went to the startup company and said, what countries do you want to protect this in? You'd say, everywhere. It's important everywhere. But if you're responsible for that and where it's protected, then you're a little bit more judicious in your choice of where you're going to protect that intellectual property. The other reason we can't pay for it is that we're a state university, and once that um, technology is licensed to a private company, we can't spend taxpayer dollars to support a private company. So that's the other, the third kind of leg of the stool in terms of the, you know, kind of the big fees that are paid for a license agreement. But we try to make it easy for startup companies, and we recognize that there's a time when you're building the business and you don't want lots of cash to be flowing out. So um, that's kind of the license terms. I don't know that they're remarkably different than what they used to be, um, but I think there is more of a recognition of what it takes um, to make a startup company successful. And as far as success stories, we have a number of success stories. I would say that with any startup company, profitability isn't really the measure that we look at because really what we want them to do is scale. Um, and when you talk about profitability, you're talking about revenue, less expenses, and I would say most of our companies are in a cash-eating mode because they are growing and growing, which is a really positive thing. So what we look for to judge the success of our portfolio companies is we look at revenues, we look at number of customers, when we look at their ability to raise external funds. So um, I just updated the numbers for our fiscal year ends June 30th, and as of June 30th, our portfolio companies had raised $145 million of funding from external sources. So that kind of speaks a bit to the success of the companies that you know, were getting a lot of traction, and most of them out of the... 64 that we have like I said only 12 existed in January of 13 So you're talking about some very nascent companies that have been quite successful in terms of scaling and raising capital 
will you help facilitate those additional capital raises? Absolutely. So we provide um, the you know the, our funding continuum has those early stage funds that will allow the company to grow up until the point where it can hit a Series A. And then once it gets to that point in time, uh, we work with our network and our partners to introduce them to those companies to other sources of capital. But there are also, they, you know, there's lots of times where they're raising capital without us. They're going to their trade shows. They're making a name for themselves in the industry. So, you know, we will facilitate where we can, but I wouldn't want to take all the credit for it. You know, they're, they're working really hard. Yeah. Good evening. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. So you... I'm trying to decide which question I want to ask. So no, no hard. Uh, we're at I the think, end. No I, hard. No hard questions. I think no you know questions. all the answers. But I don't. Bethany I don't. is where I go. She's my go-to girl. <laughs> Thanks. So I know that OSU is doing a really good job compared to the peer institutions on kind of the key performance indicators on commercialization, um, but there's still room to improve, right? And to become known as the place to go for commercializing new technologies to be mm -hmm. the place to go for um, creating startups, scaling startups. So when you look at kind of the, the internal things that Ohio State can control compared to, you know, external factors, right. what are some of the key hurdles to OSU becoming the place to go that you guys can control at OSU? Okay, so there's two initiatives that we're working on right now that um, I'm really excited about that I think will help spur us even higher. So one is um, a, a student startup fund. So right now, we talked about being a state university. We can't take this $100 million that the board set aside. Um, we can't invest that in student-owned IP. We need to invest it in Ohio State-owned IP. And we're not going to take the intellectual property away from these students who are coming up with these great ideas. So providing um, a fund that probably is more donor-focused, um, a donor-generated fund where we can provide resources to, um, to students would be really, really beneficial. And I think really help get that buzz out there because I have to say our students are just so dynamic and so vibrant and they have lots of ideas and they're doing a lot of things on campus. And to be able to give them either a place or funding or both would be really, really exciting. So that's like one of the things I think that we could, we could will really help going forward. What was the second initiative? Uh, the second is I think we need to figure out a different way to um, fund our life sciences technologies. Uh, the state has been really great in terms of providing uh, third frontier money, um, but it's primarily geared at things that will uh, get to market quickly, generate jobs within the next two or three years, that sort of thing. And a life sciences technology doesn't tend to do that. It tends to have a longer maturation cycle. So I think we need to figure out a way that we can um, get more of our life sciences technologies to market. Does it, does it matter I mean, ha having diversity across industries? How much does that matter ultimately? Like if, if if, if we're heavy in software and we're heavy in, in sort of technical hardware and not in life sciences, and let's say that we're weak there, how much does that matter sort of across the ecosystem spectrum ultimately? 
Well, I think it matters a lot when you look at a university like Ohio State um, that has 15 different colleges. And we want to make sure that we're serving those fac the faculty members from each of those colleges well. And if we're not able to help get the life sciences colleges inventions to market, I think we're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. So um, we're not MIT. MIT is able to focus on engineering technologies. And that's what they do. Um, we get to work with all of them. We, get to, we have a strong engineering school. We have a very strong vet med school. We have a strong um, college of medicine. Our ag college is fabulous. So you know, we get to look at technologies all across the board, and we don't want to leave anybody out. How much do you pay attention to what other universities are doing around research and technology commercialization? Do you care a whit about what other people are doing? Or do you pay very close attention to it? And, and do you feel like that is a competitive scenario in any way? How, how much are you aware of what's going on around tech commercialization at other educational institutions? We do a lot of benchmarking. Um, in terms of figuring out what other universities are doing, it's different. It's not like an industry where we're competing with each other. So right. there's a lot of sharing of best practices that goes on across universities. Um, that being said, uh, just because MIT does it one way, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way for Ohio State to do it. So we do a lot of benchmarking, we look at best practices, but we also look to see how do we take advantage of the resources that, you know, in Tom Walker's words, you know, the backyard effect, the resources that are in our backyard. That's what we have to take advantage of to leverage the, the assets and the strengths that we have here, and we have a lot. Yeah, cool. Please help me thank Cheryl for coming and joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.